This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, Alex Pearson with you on point. Today on our podcast, you may not think too much about the photos you put online, but China certainly does. We'll talk to an expert about what you need to know that they're doing with your data and if you're putting not just Canada at risk, but your own safety. Well, to be joined to uh, talk to a lawyer about the increase in bankruptcies. You know, we really haven't seen the economic hit of this pandemic. Well, according to what he's starting to see, the financial hit is underway. And we'll be joined by a woman fighting with the Canadian government to allow her fiancé into the country because she's fighting cancer. And so far, her pleas have gone ignored. Let's get started. Getting through to you. That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listen. Apologize to all these fellas, but you're going to break their hearts. Here comes beautiful Vicky. Pull up a seat, guys. Tip your dancers. Adriana back behind the bar. Take care of her, too. Let's have a good time Saturday night. We're going until 4 a.m. Hey, Vicky. Put your clothes on, Vicky. No more dancing for you. Put your hands together for the premier. Killing fun. That's going to do nothing to stop COVID spread. Effective today at midnight, all bars and restaurants will be only permitted to remain open until midnight. All adult entertainment clubs will be closed right across the province. All businesses and organizations will be required to implement screening procedures for the workers. And tomorrow, going forward, restaurants and bars must stop serving alcohol at 11 p.m. and close their establishments by midnight, except takeout service or delivery. Party pooper. Alex Pearson with you on this Friday, September 25th. I don't know about you, but boy, am I glad this week's in the rearview mirror because been a chaotic one. I mean, there's been a whole lot of twists and turns in this COVID thing. You know, we've got testing issues. We still have parents who can't get their kids online because now there's a teacher shortage. And of course, they haven't had months to deal with it. So welcome to that world. And then of course, this is what being in a pandemic is like, where every, every day now feels like Monday, a Monday that never stops, right? But as you heard there, the big news, Ontario tightening rules on restaurants, bars, and closing down peeler joints. So your last call now, 11 o'clock. Your drinks have to be done, 12 p.m. And if the data supported this, I'd say, hey, great idea. But there is no data to support that the surge in cases is because of bars and restaurants. I mean, yes, of course, there have been a handful of cases. But we've not seen any tracing data to show that these are the offenders of the outbreaks. But let us just say that they are, okay? What if they are? Germs don't know time. So how does this stop COVID from spreading before last call? I mean, does the little COVID germ say, mm, look, it's 1059, I better get my germ spread on? No, I mean, the bottom line is if you're in a bar at 8 p.m. versus 11 p.m., 
you're going to get it if someone's got it. So it's not going to help there. So I call this a, hey, look, we're trying to take action and make it look like we're doing something. But what I really see is that, you know, the real offenders, which is the, the, the weddings, the house parties, the large gatherings, and what's happened over the last two weeks, that's where we're seeing the numbers. So what this will do is further hurt the businesses. You know, they're trying to play by the rules or doing their best. And what it'll also do is lull folks into thinking, okay, we're safe because the peeler joints are closed and it's the bar's fault. And then they'll get together with the friends and new friends and have a gathering and they'll all pass it among each other. But it will not, what they did today will not actually stop the spread that we're seeing. And why just, why just strip joints? I mean, have you been to a bar lately? I mean, the women wear just as little. They tend to get just as close to the guys. So I think it's a very selective restriction. Thankfully, I don't go to the bars anymore. But uh, you know what might actually stop the spread? Oh, yes, that's right. Rapid testing. The very thing we do not have in this country. But I'm glad to see Justin Trudeau has now finally showed up for work. He's now going to be taking part in those daily COVID press conferences. And, you know, this is a guy who has literally been missing with Waldo for months. He has been nowhere to, you know, nowhere to be seen over the summer. He went on a vacation. No one else did. But he's been out of the picture for a good long time. And maybe he's feeling just a little left out seeing all the premiers get the attention for their leadership in this pandemic. And, you know, bottom line is he's got to he's got to make it out like at least look like he's in charge. And he has not been. But today, he did announce that there's a vaccine purchase for Canada. And we'll talk about this in a, in a little bit, because at least this was a good one. But he was also asked, you know, what we all want to know you know, is where's the rapid testing? And both he and his finance minister have made it very clear they're not going to light a fire under Health Canada's butts. There are a number of uh, rapid tests uh, in the process of being evaluated by Health Canada, uh, and they will be uh, made available as quickly as possible. We are not uh, weighing in politically, obviously, on uh, the process that the scientists are going through. And then, of course, respect the independence of our regulatory authorities and the independence of regulators to make their own careful medical judgments is more important today than ever. I want to be assured that any medicines, any tests that are used here in Canada have been approved by our regulators without any political interference or pressure. Mm-hmm. All right. So they're not going to put on any political pressure because why would they want to do that during a health crisis? I mean, hey, that would be inappropriate. I mean, if it were maybe the attorney general to help get their legally challenged friends out of trouble, then our prime minister would happily then meddle and put pressure. Things like criminal proceedings. But on rapid testing that other countries have been using for months? Oh, no, no, no. Our governments have all of a sudden discovered ethics and won't get involved. You know, it was Justin Trudeau that said in the spring, they put in measures so that Health Canada could actually expedite approval prices, uh, processes. And then did they mention that they, they did these measures? Because I cannot imagine how much slower Health Canada could, could actually move. It's actually quite scary. 
But on Thursday, you know, Christian Freeland, she said, you know, Canadians should appreciate that they live in a country where we respect the independence of our regulatory authorities. Well, hey, that would be a first with this government. Okay? Because what I really think Canadians would actually appreciate right now is the federal government pushing as hard as it can to get urgently needed rapid testing approved so we can put it in the schools, hospitals, long-term care homes, maybe households, so that we can better protect ourselves and try to get back to some kind of normal. So that we don't have to shut down strip joints and businesses and further hurt them. I mean, how is it that so many other countries have these things, have been using these things? And once again, Canada is lagging months behind. Not asking them to rush anything that's going to make people sick to market, but my God. I mean, what are you guys doing? And the cynic in me says, well, maybe the prime minister just likes to see Premier Ford sweat. Maybe he's tired of Ford getting the uh, good reviews and doesn't mind Ford taking a bit of heat for the long lines and the chaos. And sure, Ford praises Trudeau and Freeland all the time for working so well with him. But in politics, <laughs> there is no such thing as true friends on opposite sides of the aisle. And bottom line is Trudeau likes when he can come in and look like a hero, just like he did when he dumped $2 billion into school when there was all that chaos around that. Again, provincial jurisdiction didn't need to do that, shouldn't have done that, didn't, you know, but there he was. He likes to come in and he loves to play the hero. And of course, who does he want to appease? Well, the unions, the downtown Toronto crowd, win over the moms, you know. Because I think that if he actually wanted to push Health Canada on this, he could. You don't have to cross a line with that. But he can make it clear that this has to be a priority. But in the end, it looks like we're going to, you know, avoid a snap election because the good old NDP late, late, late this afternoon have decided to... They'll prop up the government again, you know, the one they constantly condemn. But no, nope, they, they struck a late afternoon deal on uh, access to sick days. You got to wonder, at what point does Jugmeet Singh get tired of being a sellout or a lapdog to this prime minister? And this prime minister will screw him over in a second. But I do not know why we get all these. I know there's lots of play in politics, lots of games. Just stop playing them, not in the middle of a pandemic. It's so transparent. Busy show for you tonight. A very, very busy show. So we're going to go through these uh, targeted um, restrictions on bars and restaurants. We'll talk to the doctor about whether this is the right move, but we'll talk a little bit more about this vaccine. This one coming to us from the UK. It is the one that is closest to market. So it is actually the one vaccine that uh, I would have no question about putting in my body. Well, for those worried that Big Brother's watching you, you're going to want to know what China's doing. They have uh, outsourced firms to collect data on those that uh, they see as a threat or who they can maybe blackmail. And we, of course, hand it to them because we put so much of our lives willingly all over social media. And an American professor who worked at a Peking university until 28 reveals a, a frightening collection of data held by a Chinese firm that has extensive links to the Chinese Communist Party. And he warns Chinese firms are now uh, hoovering up all our personal info, whether it's on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, they get photos, all sorts of information to the tune of 2.4 million people. Some famous, some not. Sometimes it's even your kids. And, you know, they, they take things like birthdays, addresses, marital status, political leanings, and 
you know, what we say about the Chinese government, that's all the kind of information they want. So it's not only putting our national security at risk, but they will use it to blackmail people they can either use or threaten. Christian Luprecht is a professor over at the Royal Military College at Queen's University, as well a uh, senior fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Good to have you, Christian. Hello. I'm not surprised by this. We've heard about it. It's just that, you know, you know, you see all the kids for hours on TikTok and, you know, everyone's sharing their dinner order or, you know, putting a you know picture with the kids on the on online. It all seems very innocent. But China has gotten quite aggressive on data collection. Have they not? Yeah. So if I may, uh, let me uh, take a few seconds and start with a joke that's uh, prolific uh, in intelligence circles. How do you know that the Iranians have been to your house, uh, everything is turned upside down, and it is total chaos? How do you know that the Russians have been to your house, everything is exactly as you left it, with the exception of your tiny little teaspoon in your kitchen uh, that is inverted, and you don't know whether that was an accident or whether they did it on purpose to signal to you that they have been there. How do you know that the Chinese have been to your house? Everything is gone. And so that's the long game that the Chinese are playing, um, generally with intelligence uh, broadly, but specifically with open source intelligence, that you never know when it might be useful. So you might as well go in and you might as well hoover up and take anything and everything that you can get, because you never know whether the teenager that today you can get in some debaucherous, drunken moment somewhere on their social media page in 20 years from now is not going to be some politician somewhere, and you might be able to use that picture uh, to blackmail them or put them under other types of pressure. Right. And and there are uh, big China companies, Chinese companies outsourced um, for this kind of stuff, and they are big data collectors. And, and because we are um, a continent here in North America, freedom of speech and expression, I mean, we make it so easy for them to, to get this stuff. Yeah, so this is why, you know, there's always the critics who are so concerned about somebody in the intelligence community in Ottawa reading their text messages or their email. And, you know, I've long pointed out that uh, the, you know, we need to be a lot less concerned about our own government and we need to be a lot more concerned on the one hand about private corporations that have no governance or oversight uh, review or accountability mechanisms and about hostile countries uh, where, again, there is no oversight review or accountability uh, for the way that uh, they collect your data, they share your data, they use your data, um, and they might uh, also manipulate your data in uh, in this 21st century. And so I think this is a also a wake-up call for where to direct our efforts and energies. And of course, the difference between a democracy and an authoritarian regime is that uh, in terms of collection, um, there's the capabilities are the same. The difference is in what actually gets done, how it gets done, and how it gets used. And that's, of course, why we need to be particularly concerned, given that we have ultimately very little um, to no leverage over what private corporations uh, or hostile countries do with our data. Uh, it means being vigilant with what people do uh, generally on the internet, and in particular, being vigilant in what you do in open source, because it takes a considerable greater effort if you're going to try to break into people's accounts. Uh, now, you have to assume that anything you do on the internet ultimately could ostensibly become public. Uh, there's no privacy per se, but if you're posting it open source, um, then uh, there's a wide variety of interests, both state-based as well as private sector and non-state actor, 
journalists who are actively hoovering up uh, that information, uh, and whether that might be uh, um, Cambridge Analytica or that might be uh, um, issues related to China or to private corporations, uh, there just needs to be much greater awareness that uh, data is the currency of the 21st century. It is more, since 2018, it's more valuable than the oil and gas industry. We've seen this during the pandemic, um, and the Chinese know uh, where their bread is buttered in terms of the future. Right. And and who are they going after in particular? Do they kind of watch for everything or specifically, you know, and, and how does it work? Let's say they see Christian and then they see Christianism, you know, talking negatively about them. They start collecting data on Christian and maybe his wife, his kids. They they essentially build folders around those who they either perceive as a threat or, or someone that they can use for their advantage, right? Right. So there's two separate issues here. So when you talk about me and, for instance, my family, so one of the things that intelligence is interested in is what's known as metadata. This is very difficult to explain to people, but metadata is not the content of your data. It is essentially the nodes and the edges that connect those nodes. That is to say, like everybody who you're communicating with and how often you're communicating with them and by what means, email, text message, telephone, and so forth. And so this is the sort of data that you can glean, for instance, from network switches, which is why there's such a debate about companies such as Huawei uh, Mm -hmm. being embedded in network switches in the West. The other is the actual content of that data. The content, because 85% of the content on the Internet is now encrypted, uh, approaching 100% probably in a couple of years' time, it is increasingly difficult to act the content and it takes a lot of effort to decrypt if you can ever decrypt it. And so the easiest information to gather is simply open source information, which you can then overlay with the metadata, with the social network analysis. And so then you don't just understand the content, you also understand the relationships that underlie the content. And that is the real treasure trove for intelligence agencies and for governments. Right. And and, and really, the only way we can protect ourselves is to be you know, not so, you know, not do so much sharing. I mean, we can't count on obviously the Canadian government to do anything to protect us. But, uh, you know, I think people are just either too naive or don't know uh, that much about, um, you know, what is going on, because we just don't do stuff like this here, or not to our knowledge, we don't. But but the Chinese government in the last few years has gotten very, very aggressive. And they are, and they also have, uh, you know, their own actors here in our country, they have national front groups that do and keep an eye on what's being said and what's being done. Yeah, and my sense is that there's a generational shift, even if I look among my own children, for instance, that there is a much greater awareness, especially among the younger generation, right. um, of the repercussions of posting material online, in particular posting it open source. But I think there's a challenge with regards to especially the older generation that are digital immigrants as opposed to digital natives, um, uh, with understanding all the options they have to protect their privacy. And I think there's also a significant digital divide, because it turns out that people who are more affluent tend to be more aware of uh, their opportunities to protect their privacy, uh, in part also because they're able to purchase machines that allow them to, for instance, uh, uh, be, uh, have greater protections for your privacy and then to deploy the mechanisms embedded in various um, applications that we use to maximize our privacy protections. So those are also important uh, communication issues to make sure that all Canadians uh, are fully aware of of their opportunity uh, to protect themselves uh, from uh, malicious uh, attempts to collect uh, their data that they inadvertently and innocuously uh, end up posting open source online.
Yeah, and and to keep in mind, they just put in that draconian uh, law, you know, where if you're basically criticizing China, they can jail you for that. So if you've put stuff out there and shared it, and you happen to travel to China or in an area uh, of the world that has an extradition a treaty in place with China, you can put yourself at real risk. Well, so and that then overlaps, for instance, with the work that embassies and consulates uh, from China, of China, for instance, do in the West in terms of keeping track of people who are sympathetic and who are critics. We saw the recent list that Huawei, for instance, in Canada keeps of uh, influential people who they think are sympathetic uh, to them. Um, and that can have subsequent repercussions because you never know when the Chinese government 10 years down the road might decide that you're going to be one of the two new Michaels uh, that they will yeah. instrumentalize for political purposes. Uh, on the excuse of something that you might have said or done many years ago uh, somewhere on some chat forum. At the same time, of course, we need to make sure that doesn't stifle uh, our freedom of expression as it is protected under the Charter here in Canada. We just need to be aware uh, that as we avail ourselves of that, uh, it might mean that uh, some of us, myself included, uh, will likely be never be able to take a visit to uh, mainland China. Me neither. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and no appetite to do so either. Christian, appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. That is uh, Christian Leprec joining us. So beware what you put online. I still don't understand why people put so much information about themselves out there, but they do. And uh, it could really backfire on you, especially in these uh, geopolitical times. Well, her name is Sarah Campbell, and these days she spends an awful lot of time begging the government for help. And that is, of course, when she's not going to treatment for her thyroid cancer. She's now mailed, and well, and that might have gone up uh, today, but 117 letters to Minister Mendocino, as well as Minister Blair, begging them to let her fiancé come into Canada from the UK on compassionate grounds. Sarah and Jacob Tyler uh, have been separated since February. That's, of course, when the pandemic uh, restrictions stopped any non-essential travel. But because they're not married, which should have happened in June, had he been able to come here, he now can't come here even on those grounds. Why we make allowances all the time for all these other peoples, and yet this woman can't even get a response is just simply unacceptable. Sarah Campbell joining me now. And first uh, question to you, uh, Sarah, you've uh, been diagnosed in July. How are you doing? How are you feeling? Well, thank you so much for having me on, Alex. First of all, I, I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, how I'm doing is a complicated question these days. Um, I'm still recovering from a very major surgery I had at the beginning of August. And still going through tests, meds adjustments in preparation for my radiation in November. So mm -hmm. fun. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's hard enough um, when we don't have a pandemic. It's hard enough uh, when you do have family support. But Jacob, uh, you know, you and Jacob would be married now. We wouldn't even be having this conversation mm -hmm. had it not been for COVID-19. And yet he can't get into this country on the grounds of compassionate, uh, um, you know, on grounds and the bottom line is, uh, there is actually no reason why he, he shouldn't be allowed here. But why why aren't these ministers getting back to you? Have you heard anything from them? So funnily enough, I uh, I did get my first response back from, the, from IRCC or the Ministry of Immigration just a couple of days ago. They, mm. uh, so they sent me a one-page letter, and I, I opened it, and 
it was what appeared to be a printout of an email. Um, the entire letter was just a list of hyperlinks. So okay. that and it didn't even have my name on it. It said, "Dear correspondent." Uh, so that's the response that I've had. Um, <laughs> not much else, and certainly nothing from uh, Minister Blair uh, or his office either. So, a lot of silence. Yeah, and at a time when I mean, look, they've had they they can. I mean, their job is to address at least address some and, and get back to you. I mean, they do serve constituents, mm-hmm. and they're not always doing ministerial work. Um, it's not like you're asking, uh, you know, for special um, grounds. We have allowed this for other people. Why do you mm-hmm. think they won't do this? Honestly, I don't have an answer for you. I. If, you know, the minister has claimed in Parliament, even as recently as yesterday, that they are considering compassionate exemptions and they have made compassionate exemptions. And it kind of boggles my mind a little bit that, you know, I'm going through stage two cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. All I'm asking for is my one fiancé to be allowed into the country just to be with me as I go through treatment. He's not coming for tourism. He's not coming for fun. You know, he will quarantine for 14 days just like everyone else. Like, you know, we want to keep this as safe as, as you know, any Canadian citizen returning back into Canada. Um, so it kind of, it's a big question mark as to why, you know, after seven and a half months apart, uh, we're still sitting in, you know, thousands of miles apart in different countries. It doesn't make sense to me. No, and the moral support and and having someone close to you makes a huge difference when you're going through cancer Mm -hmm. treatments. I mean, everyone who's had uh, someone that they love going through this knows this very well, that just having that support system in place is is crucial. But I have to think that that this has added an incredible amount of stress, and not to mention almost campaigning um, with the letter Mm -hmm. writing has has got to be also very tiring. Yeah, no, it it is exhausting. I started writing letters at uh, the beginning of July when I was diagnosed with cancer um, because I wasn't really receiving replies to emails. So I thought, if I start handwriting letters, they have got to notice me. They have got to answer me. You know, I'm not copying and pasting anything. I'm not typing these. I am handwriting these every single day, you know. And I, like you said earlier, now I've hit 119 handwritten letters as of just today. So... It's kind of like I'm putting so much effort into this. It's really become, um, yeah, like you said, it's a campaign. Yeah, and certainly you're not alone. There will be others in similar situations, but it it, it certainly hasn't uh, fallen on on deaf ears. I mean, there are people who have noticed. Certainly, polit- politicians of all stripes, whether it's Michelle Rempel, um, mm-hmm. there was a uh, Nathaniel Erskine Smith of the Liberals ha- has taken notice. Mm-hmm. There are all sorts of people coming, um, you know, to your support and trying to push for this to happen. So it's not like they don't know about it. It's just a shame that we have to shame them into it. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm part of an advocacy group called Faces of Advocacy. And so tomorrow they're actually hosting a big virtual rally um, online. And you can find that on their Facebook page, Faces of Advocacy. And they are having um, uh, MP Erskine Smith, as well as um, Michelle Rempel, who has absolutely been a champion for me personally. You know, we have support from the Green Party, Bloc Québécois. We even have support from the Liberals. 
you know, and of course the conservative party. So it's like, there's pressure from all sides here and still there hasn't really been too much movement. And I certainly have not received any communication. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit mind boggling and frustrating how, you know, liberal MPs are advocating for us to their own government and there's still no answer after, you know, the borders have been closed now for over six months. So, right. you know, where's the answer? Well, well, sometimes common sense doesn't necessarily reach the upper echelons of, uh, of Parliament. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, on the flip side, as frustrating as this is, it must give you some comfort knowing that you have an awful lot of support and support that's growing. No, absolutely. I, if I had not found our advocacy group, um, again, it's just called Faces of Advocacy, there are thousands, and I'm talking there are 7,000 members in our Facebook group. Like, I am not the only one. There's immense comfort drawn from that. Um, and we're standing together, and we're, we're fighting for love. I mean, yeah. what, what greater cause is there than to fight for love for your partner, for the man who should have been my husband by now? You know, it's yeah. almost September 27th. And we were meant to be married on June 27th. So every month when that number 27 hits, it, it's a really hard day for me because, mm-hmm. you know, it, it marks another month where it should have been two months married, three months married, four months married. Um, yeah. But we keep going. You know, we keep pushing. Well, you're fighting for love, but you are fighting for your life. And that is no laughing matter. Mm-hmm. And uh, just uh, if people want to get on this, uh, it's Faces of Advocacy. What time is this virtual um, uh, protest? So it's tomorrow at 2 o'clock. It goes from 2 to 3.30, and you will see multiple MPs on there, uh, some of the names that I have mentioned already. Um, yep. And, you know, it's, it's going to be really, really good. There's going to be a couple hundred people on, uh, on, the, on, the, on the rally. So I'd really recommend tuning in and, and, uh, and seeing that. Sarah, I wish you the very best of luck. Happy to uh, keep this under the spotlight. um, And and, uh, I wish you the very best in this journey. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alex. So we are coming up to the first of the month. And, you know, for a lot of people, it means rent payments that won't be made because they don't have the money. And we know the health hit of COVID-19, but now seven months in, we still haven't really seen the economic hit of the virus. And sure, I mean, as long as people are being propped up by the government, they've still got a fighting chance. But we're getting to the point where people's backs are against the wall and the banks as forgiving as they're trying to be, well, they can't be forgiving forever. And so the fall's kind of expected to be the time when we start to see the real damage done to small business no longer able to hang on. Alan Lippman is a commercial lawyer for Lippman Senior and Waxman. It is good to have you, sir, on this Friday night. I suspect you might be getting busy soon. How, can you characterize <laughs> what, what's that? I mean, when you're busy, it's not a good thing. It is. Uh, it means that people are in trouble. But characterize, if you can, um, you know what you're starting to see. Okay. Well, first, the nature of my practice is it's not just bury the companies or bury the individuals. I act for banks, I act for commercial landlords, and I also act for debtors who are indebted to banks other than those that I represent. So frequently, the goal is to restructure and survive. But what I'm seeing currently is the banks have been very accommodating to small business. 
Loans have not been serviced. By that, I mean they have not been making principal required payments, nor have they, many of the borrowers not made the interest payments that were due during the COVID period. Uh, informally or formally, most of the banks are lifting that moratorium as of October 1. The double squeeze happening to small business is the government commercial tenant program, which allowed um, the tenant to pay 25% of its rent, the mm -hmm. landlord to eat 25%, and the government to pay 50% is also coming to an end simultaneously. Right. So it's it's technically quite a squeeze that's going to be hitting a lot of the small business owners effective October 1. So what I'm seeing now from the banks and what I hear from the banks in particular is they want to hear from their customers who are in arrears, how are they going to address carrying on their business? How are they going to honor the rental obligations or have they negotiated a rent accommodation going forward? How are they going to pay the arrears owing to the bank? And independently, how are they going to make the current payments that start accruing in October to the bank? Right. And the biggest thing that the banks want to hear is a business plan. Show me a business plan. Show me how you're going to we'll, we'll move the arrears into capital into a separate loan facility, and the ongoing obligations remain have to remain current, and the old obligations have to start being addressed. They're not asking for an immediate lump sum payment, but they do want it to be respected and addressed. And for a lot of the small businesses, that may not be doable. They're right. And, and the banks are often seen as the bad guy, um, but they've also got bills to pay, pay too. And, you know, for, you know, before this pandemic even hit, we had very, very high insolvency rates. I mean, people are overextended personally, um, but we had been seeing bankruptcies and insolvencies kind of on the rise. And then I think everyone thought, well, OK, COVID will hit and then we're going to start to see everyone losing their jobs. But for the most part, because of the government aid and uh, banks being a bit more forgiving, we've been able to kind of stave off some of that damage. How bad do you think the hit is going to be, given your experience? Um, from the rumblings I'm hearing, I think it's going to be rather significant. Um, because most businesses right now do not have the revenue to even support the pre-COVID obligations they were obligated to right. pay. And now come October, lenders and landlords are, unless they're accommodating, expecting the pre-COVID monthly obligations to be honored and to be for the banks to be some discussion about honoring the accrued obligations that happened during. And frequently, a lot of these small businesses, their revenues are way down. Right. You know, the, right. I mean, the, the, look at anyone in the retail restaurants, their revenues are significantly negatively impacted. And manufacturers, it, it goes down the list. There, aren't too, there are not too many businesses whose revenue is equal to what it was pre-COVID. Most are less, right. some significantly less. So this is right. going to be quite a, quite a pressure push on the businesses. And the only resolution, the apparent resolution, is some of them coming to the table and putting in personal funds you know, to mm -hmm. support the business. Which is always a last resort. I mean, I mean, it, it, the smart thing to do is to, I mean, it, as much as you want to hide from the phone when the bill collectors start to call, I mean, the smart thing to do is kind of communicate, talk to someone and get some expertise. But, you know, seven months into this thing, if you haven't done that and your back's against the wall, it gets much, much harder to do. So what, you know, what would your advice be to those okay. who are really panicking right now and just don't know what to do? 
Well, there's three courses of action that, you know, small businesses and debtors take. The first one is the ostrich. They put their head in the sand, do nothing, and, and expect because they don't see or hear anything, it's going to be fine. Well, they're, you know, they're on a fatal path to destruction. It, it will be, you know, they're going to be shut down, either by landlords or lenders. The second one are those who try to hardball the bank, tell them what are you going to do, here's the keys. The banks will take the keys. Yeah. And they're out of business as well. So the smart avenue are those that openly communicate with the bank, give them their business plans, show them how they plan on restructuring to be successful again, even if it means they can't honor all their pre-COVID obligations currently, how they're going to get refooted, and show possibly a commitment to their company. They, they can't ask the banks to support their businesses and go forward if they're not prepared to support their own business and show confidence in it. It's very hard to say to the bank, tolerate the arrears, tolerate the accrues, trust me, when they're not showing confidence in their own business by supporting it with personal funds. Mm -hmm. So my advice to these businesses are get professional advice from your accountant. And if you're really in desperate need from probably an insolvency practitioner, either a, you know, a, a trustee receiver or an insolvency lawyer, and then with that team, go communicate with the bank. Right. And but it's, would, it is, it is, and you, and you've probably seen in your practice, I mean, it's pretty devastating. It's not just like you turn over the keys and you walk away. It's a devastation yeah. to not just the business owner, but families. Yeah. Well, it, it, you talk about what happens if your business fails, you know, the banks or the lenders or landlords are going to seize and realize upon all the assets of the operating business in yeah. one way or another, they're going to liquidate it. And then they're going to look to the principals, assuming they've signed guarantees. They may not have guaranteed the landlord. That's a 50-50. But 95% of the time, if not more, they've guaranteed the lending institution, the bank. So mm -hmm. now the bank's going to call upon the individuals, the proprietors, the guarantors, to honor their obligations. And now we go to the next level. They, they're not going to walk away. Either you have to bear your financial situation, show them your assets, and make them an offer based upon your net worth and the banks will be accommodating. You know, if you owe them 500,000 on your guarantee, but your net worth is 200,000, they're willing to listen to an offer that might even be under 200,000, but you're showing them integrity. Yeah. Um, if you don't speak to them, they want the full five and then they go really down the path of destruction. Right. The bank hires me. Mm -hmm. Now the legal fees get mounted in interest is accruing costs are going up and it becomes that you're, you're chasing a growing number, it gets even worse. So ignoring the bank, threat, you know, challenging them to sue you is really a huge error. You need yeah. to communicate. You need to communicate. And the best is with a professional on your arm. And you will find that the banks are not unreasonable. They're not looking to get more than is available. They're not looking to destroy your family. But that happens if yeah. you are arrogant about it or you play ostrich. Yeah, good advice. But nonetheless, people don't panic. There is actually help out there. And it is very hard to ask for it, but sometimes it is the smartest thing to do. Alan, thank you very much. I hope you're not busy, but uh, I fear you will be. But I appreciate your insight in the, on this. My pleasure, Alex. Have a good evening. That is a... Alan Lippman joining us. And these guys uh, are we're already busy. But um, again, don't hide. Pick up the phone. Make a call. At least do that. That is your podcast for today. You can listen to us, of course, on point Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson. 
Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.